and welcome to The Haunting Hour. My name is Ryan Brown, your co-host here at The Haunting Hour, and joined as always alongside my brother Tyler. Ty, how you doing? I'm doing quite well. Ryan, how are you on this dreary Tuesday? It's actually great out. It's rainy, you know, um, a little spooky out. I'm, I'm kind of feeling this vibe today. Yeah, this is like a quintessential eclectic fall weather right now. Yeah, I'm digging it. Um, I've had the best two days off of my entire life. Last night, I checked something off the bucket list. I can't tell you what it is because <laughs> that is not PG friendly for our podcast, but I crossed something amazing off the bucket list and I'll just leave it at that. First of all, gross. I don't even want to know what you crossed off your bucket list. What number was it? You, what, don't, you don't even want to know. Does it, is it like a numbered list? Oh, like on my bucket list of yes. things? Um, I think number, number one's probably like swimming with great white sharks or something ridiculous like that. So this was probably... This was number two. No, this was probably at least two or... <laughs> like, honestly, two or three. Because I think three might... Or three or four might be having sex in Dracula's castle on, like, silk red sheets with some hot goth girl. That's, like, number three or four. So this might have been number two, actually, yeah. Would you be too afraid to have sex? Or would you just be like, this is so hot? Afraid to have sex? No, in, in Dracula's castle? No. What if What if Vlad Tibet's ghost, like, walked by? That's all I want to do in life. And that'd be amazing. I'd just wave to him and be like, hey, man, can you grab me a uh, whiskey out of the fridge on your way by? Thank you. All right, so let me get this straight. Between swimming with great white sharks mm-hmm. and having sex in Dracula's castle, <laughs> you did something last night that you can't say on air. Yeah, there's something in between those two things. I'll let you use your imagination, all of our listeners. But I hate how you said in between. Mm-hmm. Gross. <laughs> it was awesome. I think that's a scarier topic than what we're going to be discussing tonight. 100% scarier. Um, so yeah, when you guys are having nightmares, hopefully it's not about that. Well, I'm glad you're having a good couple of days. It's been fantastic so far. I got to get back to work tomorrow, so I'm not looking forward to that. But you know, I'm going to enjoy the rest of tonight for you know what I have. So, um, and I'm pretty sure we have a dope topic coming in tonight, right? We do. I mean, we wanted to cover this topic for like five months, but other topics have just come up, like easier topics. Um, this one though, it's one that most people who are versed in the supernatural and the paranormal do know about, and the horror movie genre. So. Yeah, this is, I would say, maybe top three for the most popular scary movies that have come out in the past six, seven years. I'll say I'll say it again. I say it all the time. These movies shaped our generation for horror, I think, for our generation, more or less. Other than Saw, maybe. But that was James Wan as well. Correct. Yep. So tonight we're all we're gonna be talking about the con the true story of what happened in the conjuring two, um, the Enfield Poltergeist. Literally, I think the conjuring itself though. That movie shaped our generation for creepy horror movies. I think Insidious did it. Okay, I was literally about to say, what do you think was scarier first time you saw it, though? Because I know you and Courtney had like a traumatic experience first time you saw Insidious 1. I mean, Insidious 1 was, for anyone who has not seen it, first of all, pause this and go start it. And also, good luck. Yeah, also, good luck. Um, No, that movie was horrifying. Yeah, it was, oh my God. I still remember when the demon, first time I saw the demon come up behind Patrick Wilson, I was like, I might have to shut this one off. I might have to leave the theater on this one because it's the scariest f- And that was weirdly early in the movie. That was like 40 minutes in. Yep. Yeah, I think the, the part that got me was when Dalton's grandma, so Patrick Wilson's mom, had a dream about opening Dalton's door and the demon was in the corner of the room. Or, no, or maybe it was, or no, that was definitely his, his grandma who said that. I think so, yeah, because then it points at Dalton. Exactly, because she asked the demon, what do you want? And then it raised its its arm and pointed at Dalton. Yeah, I'd be like, nope, not today. Not today, my friend. But, I mean, in that same um, in that same breath, The Conjuring 2 
terrifying. It's my favorite horror. I'll probably get shunned for this, but it's my favorite horror movie of all time. Yeah, and before we, we came on air, Ryan told me that he literally watched this movie again last night. He's seen it before, but it's been a while, right? Yeah, that, let me tell you right now, that was not the bucket list item that we're talking about that <laughs> happened last night. It was just a spur of the moment thing that happened um, last night. I haven't seen it since. I think I watched it the last October during Halloween time. Um, but man, that movie is so well done. There are so many cool villains and monsters in it. And it's not just one. That's what I love about this movie. Very unlike The Conjuring 1 where it's just Bathsheba the Witch. This one has the old man, um, Bill Wilkins, that we're going to talk about tonight. It has the crooked man. When I first saw that, it was such a curveball. I was like, am I watching a Tim Burton film right now? And I was like, I love this. Um, I know a lot of people hated that part. And then we get introduced to the freaking nun as well. And she was the person who caused like the Amityville haunting, if you will, in that movie. And I was like, this is so freaking awesome. I love this movie. It was a really cool film because it also went back to the Warrens' house in Connecticut, so mm-hmm. it went back and forth. Yep. Um, so the we'll go into you know what inspired The Conjuring too, but it was overseas. It was uh, in England, but in the movie they also went to the Warrens' house for the first time. I think no, in, they, in the they, Conjuring universe, they, they did it in Conjuring one because remember Bathsheba was rocking in the chair with Annabelle. I remember because uh, their daughter freaked out when yes. she got locked in the room. But this was the one where, remember, the nun like walks by the... Yep. It was out. like you were watching two different scary movies yeah. that related to each other. And when she goes, like, it still stops my heart to this day when the Warren's daughter goes, Mom, who's that? And you pan down the hallway and the nun's just standing there. Literally the first time I saw that, my heart dropped. I was like, what the f*** is that? I hate this so much. And there was a part where the nun's shadow was walking in... um. Patrick Wilson's study. Yeah, and it goes to the And uh, it goes picture. to the picture that Patrick Wilson, who who plays Ed Warren, um, painted, and it's a picture of the nun. The shadow goes into the picture, and then the picture like comes alive. Yep. It's terrifying. Apparently, we're, I guess, a movie podcast tonight. For people who don't know, The Conjuring 2 is actually based off of a legitimate haunting. So tonight, we're going to be discussing the actual scary story, the scary documented case that inspired james wands the conjuring 2 mm-hmm. and this was called the enfield poltergeist Ooh, strap in i'm excited all right so the conjuring 2 focused on one of the most famous supernatural cases in modern history which we named it the enfield poltergeist the case involved strange voices levitation flying objects furniture being moved through the air cold breezes and more and while some called it a hoax, others considered it to be one of the most witnessed cases of supernatural activity to date. But what really happened during the Enfield poltergeist? So it all started in a quaint little home in Enfield, London, in 1977, when Peggy, uh, Peggy Hodgson, a single mother of four, heard loud noises coming from her daughter's bedroom. When she went to tell her daughters, Margaret, who was 12, and Janet, who was 11, to settle down and go to sleep, Instead of roughhousing, which Ryan and I have. I mean, we've done this before when we were 11 and 12. I was beating the shit out of you. And mom's like, guys, I'm trying to sleep. Elbow drop from the top rope, bitches. Oh. <laughs> Just your dad take off his belt. Boys. <laughs> All right. When she went to. Oh, disclaimer. That never really happened. But... <laughs> no, our dad. Our dad loved us. Uh, when she went in to tell her daughters to stop roughhousing, she found them huddled in the corner with terrified expressions on their faces. 
in the movie, uh, like, I was laughing really hard because, you know, this poor mother, she was like, you know, she's working a nine to five job every day and the kids go to school and then she has to come back. Um, but then Janet wakes up freaking screaming because um, the bed starts shaking and she goes, runs into her mom's room and starts like crying to her. And then she comes in and finds the Ouija board that she made at school. And the mom just flips out and she's like, no wonder I can't get a good night's sleep around here. And she like rips it in half. And she just starts screaming at him. I was like, this poor mother. Oh. Dude, you know that was like a Monday night at like nine twenty one, and like she she was definitely not watching Monday Night Raw. Oh no, definitely not. Or actually, maybe she was trying to watch it and she couldn't hear uh, what Vince was saying over her two daughters screaming. Oh, I love it. I have a quote here from Janet, who was one of the daughters. Mm-hmm. "Quote: We told our mom the chest of drawers was moving toward the bedroom door. Peggy, the mother, then witnessed the drawers actually moving herself in the direction of the door by a seemingly invisible force." Almost as if some presence was trying to trap the girls in the room. Oh, like shutting the door to making, like locking them in there. Yes. Yeah, they do that in the movie beautifully, actually. What year was this? 1977. 1977, okay. When she went to try and push back against the dresser, it would not budge. Damn, that's spooky. So it's like pretty much something was there holding it, I feel like. Yes. As she was pushing it, it was just pushing back harder. So the three eventually moved the dresser and then ran across the street to ask for help from their neighbors, Vic and Peggy Nottingham. When Vic went into the house to investigate, he too said he heard strange noises coming from around the home. The Hodgsons called the police, and even though one officer claimed to have seen a chair move across the room, they decided that it was not a police matter. That does make sense. I mean, what if you're a cop and you come into a house that's blatantly haunted, what are you supposed to do? Like, it's not like you can arrest the ghost or you can't really physically help the family at all so i I can answer that yeah you call zach bagans and the ghost adventures crew (laughs) did someone just scratch me (laughs) so according to the family that was just the beginning of what would become their nearly 18 month one year and a half haunting jesus christ i thought amityville was bad for the length of time they had to deal with that but freaking a year and a half dude i can't imagine that and we've talked about this before a lot where we go through the three stages of um, possession mm-hmm. of a quote unquote Vatican, uh, like induced possession mm-hmm. where it's depression, oppression, possession. Yep. And I mean, for a year and a half, that's plenty of time for you to get to all three of those stages. Yeah. We said it in our, um, demon spirits, um, episode, I feel like if, if a demon's really, really trying, I know you don't believe in them, but I feel like an, if a negative spirit's really, really trying, I feel like it can cause that, that initial depression and oppression within, if it's trying hard, maybe a month. Right. I felt it when I got my Ouija board attachment, and that happened within two weeks. Yeah, imagine that, but over a span of 18 months. Oh, there would be nothing left of me. I'd be like a shell of myself, slamming a glass of water in the corner or like a tequila shot and be like, just drink this, you'll feel better. So another quote from Janet. We didn't understand what was happening. We went through periods where we just couldn't believe what had happened was real. It was frightening. We didn't like to be on our own in the house, end quote. So that's horrifying. Right. And it seems like it started off like most hauntings really occurs. It started off kind of small with noises and stuff, but then it seems like the quotes that you're giving me, it's escalated into something that is so mind boggling that they have no idea what to do. Yeah. And she said it like super accurately too. I mean, they did not want to be alone in the house. It's different when there's five other or four other people in the house when your siblings are there and your mother's there. Right. Yeah. I feel like the the energy in the house is so different than compared to when it's just you sitting there doing something. Right. And I mean, that plays into a lot of things, but on the one hand, if you see something happen, no one's really going to believe you unless you have other witnesses on the other and, and on the, like the flip side of that coin, 
Um, if you're alone, like you just feel so much more vulnerable. Right. I would not want to move. I would just like sit in a chair and I'd be so scared to turn around or something or like sleep. Imagine if you had to sleep there alone one night, if like your mom brought everybody somewhere else and you had like a field trip the next day at school that you couldn't miss. I'd be like, no, no, I would sleep in the yard. Thank you. Next. So when the strange incidents continued, Peggy decided to call a popular UK publication called the Daily Mirror to come and investigate the supposed supernatural occurrences. When the reporter arrived, the house sat silent for hours, so they didn't get any supernatural activity. It wasn't until the reporter was about to leave that something actually happened. So why do you think that is? Mm, Whatever entity it was wanted to give this person a little taste. Like, hey, you're going to come in here and demand that I do something. You're coming here to try to find proof. No, I'm not going to give it to you. But right when you're about to leave, yeah, I'm going to let you know I'm here. Um, but I'm not going to make it like a huge theatrical thing that's going to show everybody. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that would be classified as like a class A intelligent response. Like they saw this, this outsider come in with equipment, perhaps like a camera, a recording device, whatever it is. Yep. Um, and they said, Hey, like exactly what you said. They just did not want to be too overt with their, whatever it was that they were haunting. Yeah. And that seems very intelligent to me that the fact that it can hold itself and not be like hey right. i'm gonna show you everything right now i'm gonna step back a little bit and let you do your thing but right when you're about to leave yeah i'm gonna scare you yeah that seems like too intelligent yeah so that i mean probable cause there that this could turn into a full-fledged possession if you will if this spirit is negative enough so let's talk about what happened to that photographer so it was quoted that a lego brick flew through the air and hit him above the eye he still had the mark a few days later. I know how bad it is to feel when you step on one of those motherfuckers. So, God, getting hit in the face with one? Yeah, I'd be pissed. Yeah, and it sounds like it was whipped at him. So after that, Maurice Gross came into the case. So the Daily Mirror, that reporter who got hit in the head with the Lego, called the Society for Psychological Research, the SPR, who sent Maurice Gross to investigate the case. During his stay at the house, and get this, Gross had said that he witnessed more than 2,000 incidents of supernatural activity. Damn. That's insanity. So I bet that like goes all the way from footsteps to cold breezes, um, knocking on the walls, rapping on the walls, that kind of thing, but probably all the way up to probably seeing like a chair move across the room or seeing a full-fledged apparition or whatever like he might have seen. Um, so that's spooky. And the scariest thing about this to me is... If you want to believe that this experience was true and the whole thing was not a hoax, because I know that's a big speculation for this case, um, whatever this entity is seems so powerful. It can move drawers, it can move an entire bureau, and then that makes me think of how much power it has to whip a little Lego. That could, like, blind you if you wanted to. Yeah, it's like a bullet. Yeah, Jesus Christ. So another quote from Janet, and this was actually about kind of like what you said. So this is what um, Maurice saw. So, quote, Marie saw furniture turning over, cups filled with water, fires igniting, voices, and partial levitation. The Hmm. most frightening encounter was when, this is for Janet, a curtain wrapped wrapped itself around her neck next to her bed. Jeez, trying to strangle her? Right. That steps over the line from being like a, what everybody calls a poltergeist, a noisy spirit, to an intelligent, dangerous type of spirit that could actually harm you if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time yeah so that's like that goes right into a hostile negative entity 
So it was during this time when Maurice was still investigating that the supposed poltergeist started to speak through Janet. The young girl would often go into a trance-like state where she would speak in deep, scratchy voices, claiming to be the ghost of a man named Bill Wilkins, who had died in the house years before. It was later proven that a man by that name was once a resident of the home and did in fact die of a hemorrhage while sitting in the living room. So there's either two ways you can look at this. Either Janet and the family did research on who owned the property before them, and then they got her to somehow speak in a deep man's voice in front of these people to make this hoax amazing. Or literally a man named Bill Wilkins was coming back from the grave at that house and was so negative or wherever he was in the afterlife, so powerful that he could take over Janet's body and come through her in that way. Yeah, I find it really hard to believe that this family would stick with the hoax for a year and a half. Yeah, and plus it doesn't seem like they're getting huge amounts of attention. I don't know how like big this guy, I don't know if it was worldwide news, but if they only had like one or two people, like a photographer and Morris Gross coming to come investigate and probably like local news and stuff. It's not like you're going to get a huge amount of money for that or like not like Amityville or the Warrens as big as they were at that time. We're getting that kind of money. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can look at it like, was this mom and this family so desperate for like even a little bit of money that they would create this elaborate hoax or was this a legitimate haunt that <laughs> scarred an entire family for almost two years? Right. And that's something I feel like you will never know. The evidence itself is kind of compelling that somebody died in a house named Bill Wilkins and then he came back through somebody. That's compelling, but you're never really going to know if it was a hoax or not. Speaking of evidence, we have the actual documented voice that, I'm not sure, I think it was Maurice who caught it. So it was SPR, the psychological research that he um, worked for. Yep. So we have the actual recording, the conversation between him and Janet who was apparently Bill Wilkins at this point. Yep. So we'll leave it up to you guys. And just a quick heads up, Maurice asks a question and then Janet responds. So just listen up and let us know on um, Insta what you guys think about this. I want you to tell me whether you remember what happened to you when you died. Just before you died and just after you died. All right, so I don't know if you heard exactly what Janet said when she was allegedly Bill, but she said that he died of a hemorrhage in the chair downstairs, and that is an actual documented fact. A man named Bill Wilkins died of a hemorrhage in that house. The only thing I don't like about it is, one, there's no video evidence to go along with it. There should be a video on Janet at that time to see her talking in this way. Um and the only other thing I don't like about it is even me and you knowing that like we've had very large amounts of paranormal experiences in our life so far. If I was sitting interviewing somebody like a little girl and that voice came out of her in the background, I, you would hear me being like, holy sh**. But in the background, you hear none of that. It's just her perfectly talking like that. Yeah. I mean, they did this a couple of times too. This wasn't just a one time deal where she was like channeled through or a spirit channeled through her. So I'm not sure if 
um, Maurice was just desensitized to it because he's heard it before, and now he was actually trying to capture it on recorder. So number one, it's compelling because it's that voice that's not an 11-year-old girl. Right, exactly. And then number two, the facts add up. So unless they went into like the town researcher, wherever they kept it back in the 70s or the mid 70s in London, I mean, that is, that's compelling. No, and I do like the fact that maybe he's experienced it so much that he was like, okay, everybody's going to stay dead quiet this time so we can get it on a recording so we have this evidence that we can show everybody when the time comes. Throughout the 18-month period, a number of additional paranormal researchers visited the house, including the famed demonologists Ed and Lorraine Warren. Ooh, Patrick Wilson, baby, let's go. So those two publicly stated that they were convinced that the supernatural was responsible for the strange happenings inside the house. All right. Okay. So a quote from Ed Warren here about the Enfield uh, poltergeist, the Enfield haunting. Those who deal with the supernatural day in and day out know that the phenomena are there. There's no doubt about it. So he was thoroughly convinced that there was something going on in that house. Okay. And that's even more compelling to me now because I feel like he he's dealt with enough stuff already in his career before this happened where what he says you have to kind of take to heart and be like, okay, if he's actually saying something's here, maybe there actually is. Right. But on that same note, they were still up and coming. So maybe any kind of uh, like any kind of supernatural occurrence, alleged supernatural occurrence, they wanted in on. Okay. This is getting more and more freaking tough down the rabbit hole on this one. Man. And wait for this part. So we're going to play devil's advocate here. Ooh, my favorite game. So, of course, many people cast their doubts on the events, claiming that the children were behind the elaborate hoax the entire time and were faking the demonic symptoms. Two SPR, so that was the company that Maurice was in, Mm -hmm. two SPR experts questioned Janet's gruff voice and didn't believe her and later caught two of the children bending spoons. Okay. All right? Yep. Janet admitted that she and her siblings did fabricate a few events. Here's a quote. Oh, yeah, once or twice we faked it. Just to see if Mr. Gross and Mr. Playfair, who was part of the SPR, would catch us. They always did. End quote. Later, she said, about 2% of the events in the house were faked, which means 98% was real. Oh, man, you know what scares me about that? Is the fact that whatever this entity was, if you want to believe it was an entity wanted the kids to fake this to get Morris Gross and the guys from the psychological um, research group to catch them and be like, okay, this is a hoax. Everybody's leaving. Once everybody leaves, then whatever, I don't want to say demonic, whatever negative entity this was would have its like fair share of whatever it wanted to do on this family. And that's when it could cause like some serious physical harm. Right. So this is the classic boy who cries wolf issue. And that is the most intelligent spirit, alleged spirit, that I have ever heard of in my entire life. Right, because then it makes you think that it has the ability to, I don't want to say predict the future, but to kind of psychologically know or think it's going to know what's going to happen. Like, hey, these people are going to leave once I get these kids to fake this so that I can have, then I can cause like harm on them. Or it's still that in tune with its humanity and personality where it understands that if these reporters catch these girls doing this then they're going to think it's a hoax and they're going to get out of here and it makes me wonder do you think spirits can actually they have the ability to think logically or do you think it's more of just like a physical kind of thing like they can hey i can move this and scare somebody in the moment or do you think they can like plan it out yeah but then you have to ask yourself why is the spirit trying to scare 
a human. Right, yeah. And we've it's just like Monsters, so, Inc. Uh, yeah, right. Monsters, Inc. 3. Right, yeah. And it makes you wonder if then if your soul is attached to your conscience still after you die. Like if your conscience isn't a type of thing that just fades away after you die. In this case, absolutely not. This is giving me proof that your conscience is still there after you die. Right. I mean, and you guys heard it for yourself. That was uh, that was Janet, who was Bill, talking about how Bill died. And it remembers how it died. Right. So then you have that cognition of knowing what happened in your past. Right. So now spirits have memories. <laughs> wow. You just opened a chest that I'm never going to be able to close. <laughs> this is like a little too heavy for a Tuesday night. All right. Nearly 40 years later. Janet and Margaret say that while they've managed to move on from the traumatic time in their life in the 70s, the haunting stays with them. A quote from Margaret, It does stay with you every step of the way. It's just like a death, really. It gets a little bit easier as time goes on, but the fear and the memories of it and what happened never leaves you, end quote. The most, like, famous pictures out of this entire ordeal that happened in Enfield is the pictures of Janet, like, flying out of her bed that they caught. Um, and it looks like she, people say it looks like she's jumping out of bed. Some people say it looks like she got tossed out of bed, but the fact that they say it's stuck with them for 40 years, if I was ever tugged out of my bed or thrown out of my bed, that's something I would never forget. It would be ingrained in my memory and I'd be so afraid every time I would go to bed. Yeah. You I, never know what would happen. I would think about it every single night before I fell asleep. Yep, exactly. So that, I mean, there's a little more relevance right there as well. Yeah. That's like, that is the definition of trauma. So the big question to you then is, was this 100% a legitimate haunt? Do you think half of it was hoaxed, half of it is a haunt? Or do you think the entire thing was just a story that the Hodgson family made up? If there was more video evidence and photographic evidence of this case, I would be more inclined to say that this is 100% true. But there's not that much. There's more audio and they have a, like, a couple pictures of the house and the family and stuff. That being said, it scares me to think that this entity is so negative and so powerful for some reason after Bill Wilkins died that he had the ability to jump into Janet and channel her whenever he wanted. And also saying that it's the fact that maybe he would like whisper to the family, like, if you don't fake this, I'm going to kill your mom tonight. And then so they did that to fake it, to please the spirit because they were so afraid of what it might actually do. Yeah, that's a... That's a terrifying idea. And that's why I love how James Wan did it in the movie because he he took that idea, like he gave you all the evidence, but then he took his own idea of what maybe he thinks happened or like he made it super scary in this way that Bill Wilkins, the man in the movie, was being controlled by Valak, like the big, big bad demon from hell, um, who is the nun at that point. So it makes you think like he was this little puppet and then Valak was this big puppet master that could do whatever it wanted okay so next question do you think that house was haunted before bill wilkins died this is the question that i had when i was going through this entire article man i would love to know what happened in that house before bill wilkins moved in or what bill wilkins was doing in the house yeah who who knows what type of activity was it maybe he was doing like a ouija board and conjuring demonic shit every night and that's why he was so powerful in the afterlife or something along those lines so I would love to know what happened, but I feel like we're never actually going to know. I mean, this happens a lot too. Like people say that ghosts and spirits and demonic entities and negative presences can initiate in people certain lesions, right? Uh, like heart attacks, like strokes, like hemorrhages. Yep. Do you think something 
inside the house was not happy with Bill, or maybe Bill called out to something and something uh, answered and caused him to have a hemorrhage in the house. Yeah, remember in Willow's Weep, that happened to one of the ladies who moved into the house. It was like a husband and a wife, and the lady died from a freak heart attack, I believe it was. And somebody else died from a hemorrhage in Willow's Weep house, and that caused her husband to commit suicide. Yes. Um. So it makes you think, maybe, there's, maybe there was something on the grounds before, or maybe something really traumatic happened in the house before Bill Wilkins moved in. And it caused like a demonic entity on the other side, or some big bad evil spirit to take that house as its own and then it took advantage of bill and then caused him to have this hemorrhage yeah i mean maybe bill had this like like this this alpha ambiance and was like i'm not going to tell anyone that i'm being haunted so bad he wasn't comfortable telling anybody he was like i'm just going to deal with this or he was yeah or he was like trying to be as ignorant as possible with it like a uh you know if i ignore this it'll go away and then the spirit finally said fuck you and gave him a hemorrhage yeah or something scared him so bad that he had like a brain bleed. Jesus Christ. Yeah, I think in this case it would have been he heard or saw something that... So scary. Right. Because, I mean, that happens. You're, it's like your uh, parasympathetic system and your sympathetic system just go haywire. Right. It's like that fight or flight response. So if right behind you there was someone standing there, your adrenaline would go through the roof. Your heart rate would go to like 290, right? Yeah. And in a lot of people, if you're over a certain age or you're not healthy, that's going to... That's going to set something off. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like it would be one of those things where you would have to, for me personally, you'd have to like turn and then it would be literally like right in your face and it would scare you to death. Right. It would be like, boom, right there. So maybe he fell asleep in the chair and woke up to it. Woke up, turned to his right. And then like two inches from his head was the nun. Right. I mean, type of demonic entity or something. I'm a healthy mid 20 year old and I would be in hell before like (laughs) I knew it. It's a little warm. (laughs) We're putting on the heat last night. No, no, actually, you're actually in hell. Welcome, welcome. We've been expecting you. <laughs> like, imagine if that happened to you and you were taken out of your life prematurely. And that's why he tried to channel through yeah, Janet. He just wanted to stay in, t- in his house. And he yeah. wanted to, like, still enjoy his house because his time was up too quickly. I'd be pissed off as well. And maybe he was trying to help the Hodgson family. How so? I'm not sure. I didn't go through all of the auditory evidence but maybe he was trying to like at some point get enough energy or get enough trust in the family to say like hey there's something in the house imagine like he was protecting them and then whatever negative entity this was was the one who was causing like the janet to get thrown out of bed to get exactly all of the the window curtain to wrap around her neck and maybe he was there just trying because he never says anything negative in the audio recordings he he's just like tells a story what happened to him right and maybe he was trying to get to them and be like hey there's something else here right oh my god i think there are just so many layers to this haunt to this supernatural occurrence that it's it's going to be everyone's going to be skeptical regardless but that's what makes it really interesting in my opinion oh yeah that's what i meant when i was like this is this is like one of the most infamous alleged again quote unquote alleged haunts of the past 50 years um did the warrants help them out at all or no so they get the Catholic Church in? In the movie, James Wan did fabricate how often or how frequent the that the Warrens were active in the haunting. It is documented that Ed and Lorraine did go overseas and they did stay in the house. I don't think it was as long as what um, James Wan put in The Conjuring 2. I okay. think Maurice Gross was, was the 
the head uh, investigator for this occurrence. Then maybe the Warrens just got wind of it and they're like, hey, we got to go check this out. They dealt with Amityville before that. Yep. So maybe they were like... 74? I think so, yeah. And they were like, this is England's Amityville. We should probably go check this out. Right. And you could, and we said this earlier too, were they checking it up because they were actually concerned or were they checking it up because they wanted a little bit more of uh, fame? You listeners are going to have to I don't know, come up with your own theories on this one because this one is tough for me to deal with. I would have to be there. And if I was there and I saw something move, then I'd be like, all right, something's happening here. I believe this family. Yeah. I mean, the fact that the girls admitted to actually setting up some of the um like the hoaxes or that they, they they performed hoaxes yep i mean that's i'm but, not sure if it's two percent or was it 20 percent. that's a red flag right there right i'm usually attracted to that and women when i see the red flag i'm like okay hey how you doing but that being said if like th- if that kind of red flag showed up i'd be like i'm gonna step away from this because you guys are faking this and i'm not gonna believe anything else that happens in the house but again was something so smart that it knew that if the girls got caught faking it, that like the eyes of the world would not be on them anymore. Right, and then it's just him and the family. Right. And then maybe he gains all that power from scaring him so much, and then he's tur- he's like charging himself up. Right, and if he had enough power to actually verbally possess a, one of the, the kids, did he have enough physical power to actually cause them to be the ones to bend spoons? Oof. Or did he put that in their head like, oh, it'd be funny if we bend these spoons, but... I mean, he had like an actual malevolent um, meaning behind doing it. And that's what I think is cool about this story because that's that's what makes this story scary in my opinion. Like that's the one thing that like sure the stuff moving across the room and the footsteps and the voices that you hear channeling through Janet. That's scary. But the fact that this entity could have this much power over a family, that's what's truly scary to me. So to all of our listeners, we hope you enjoyed this episode on the Enfield Poltergeist. And we've got some fun stuff heading your guys' way. I believe we're going to order our merchandise up next week or the end of this week to get it shipped here um, to get it all situated to send out to everybody if they would like a t-shirt and or a koozie because that's what we've come up with for our um, designs and for what our merchandise is going to be. Um, And that being said, if you guys could do us a solid, we would love it if you guys could tell all your friends and family about our podcast. Um, Word of mouth is huge for our show and getting other people and other listeners to come listen to us, as well as if you guys could give us a uh, five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That helps us rise through the ranks a little bit um, and helps people find us on Spotify and Google Podcasts. Also, Tyler's got his fingers on the keys right now, and I'm curious to see what he does here. I just want to leave uh, our fans with probably the scariest nursery rhyme of all time, which is, it's not an actual documented part of the Enfield Poltergeist, but in the Conjuring 2 movie, the James Wan version, it, it Ryan touched on it earlier, the crook man. Yep. Oh my God, it ruins lives. Also, can we hum a few bars quick? Yeah. <clears throat> I can help. Falling in love with you. Thank you very much. Shall I stay? Would it be a sin? For I can't help falling in love with you
Hey! <laughs> hey! <laughs>